Hey everybody, okay. welcome to Super Simple. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're very lucky to have Heath May from HKS join us. Um, we did a uh, sort of a little bit of a preview a couple of days ago, and trust me, you guys are in for an awesome project. Uh, some of the things these guys are doing are really at the, uh, the bleeding edge of what's possible in architecture, so this is gonna be a really awesome one. Um, if you don't know Heath, uh, he's a director of HKS Laboratory for Intensive Exploration. He's an architect with 12 years of professional experience, including commercial, hospitality, sports, and healthcare. He's currently focused on R&D and the application uh, of this research to the built environment. Uh, he has an avid interest in, in passive solar design, uh, which encourages a current line of research initiative into the potential for using software for dynamic solar design. Um, in addition to R&D, Heath leads a design team responsible for projects including Future GSA, uh, which is a net zero renovation solution that earned the 2012 WAN uh, Commercial Building of the Year Award. And he worked as a senior designer on sustainable urban living, uh, which was a winner of the 2010 Chicago Athenaeum uh, Green Good Design Award. Uh, in April of 2013, he was named a recipient of the Building Design and Constructions 40 Under 40. Way to go, uh, Heath. Um, and he currently serves on the advisory board of the PACCAR Technology Institute at the University of North Texas and holds a position on the executive committee of the HKS Global Design Council. So that's a little bit about Heath. Uh, before we get started, if you'd like to register for our next episode of Super Simple, you can go to blackspectacles.com podcast to register to attend. Um, and today, you guys know that we have design software tutorials taught by world-class architects like Heath um, on blackspectacles.com. So make sure you stick around until the end of the episode because we have a special Black Spectacles promo code to share. Uh, so stay tuned to hear about that at the end. And then today we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box as well as on Twitter using the, simple, using the super simple podcast hashtag. Um, so yeah, so to get started, again, thank you, Heath, for sharing your work with us. Can you tell us a little bit about the LA, LA Rams project? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, so what we have here, we have a 70,000 seats uh, NFL stadium. Uh, it's part of about 300 acres of uh, urban redevelopment uh, in Inglewood, California. It's just east of LAX. Roughly 11 acres of open plaza that will be covered by an aluminum skin uh, and a 6,000 seat performing arts venue also underneath that, uh, that aluminum skin. So uh, the, the premise of the, of the project, uh, really large uh, redevelopment uh, just east of LAX airport in LA. You know, the, the, the thing I want to mention first is that uh, this is very much a work in progress. And as you can imagine with a, with a project of this, uh, the scope and complexity, uh, it's a very highly orchestrated team. And so, you know, I want to uh, particularly thank Walter P. Moore Engineers, uh, Zayner Metals, and Studio NYL uh, as being, you know, really key players and part of the process with our sports and entertainment studio along with Lion here at the office. So this is it, right? That is it. Uh, so uh, here we have here, uh, you know, just an aerial kind of uh, to, to get your bearings a bit. Uh, so the the roof that you see here um, is covering uh, not only the, the NFL stadium itself, but that 6,000 square foot performance venue and a really large uh, area of public plaza. Um, and it's important to understand that this is an open air stadium. So while we have some protection from the elements, um, it's not going to be enclosed and air conditioned in the traditional sense. Okay. So uh, go to the next slide here. Uh, before we get into exactly what we're doing, I thought it would be helpful to understand kind of why and how we approach this project. And um, we use technology early in the process to really kind of understand uh, the climate of the location. And we dig really deep into this. And so this is kind of a page from a, what we call a design brief that we created really early on in the project uh, to start to understand what the climate was like, um, not just generically in Southern California, but specifically in this site. So we'll go to the next page. And here we can see the uh, the the outline of the the available uh, acreage that we're that we're looking at here, and you can see LAX kind of in the in the lower left of this page. Um, so we can understand that it's going to be highly visible um, from a flight pattern as you fly into LAX. You're going to come right over the top of the stadium. Um, that uh, that was a constraint and a criteria that we had to think about, not only keeping the uh, the stadium low enough uh, for the uh, flight patterns, but also thinking about during the construction and the erection process how we make sure to keep the cranes and the other equipment um, within the FAA guidelines. Okay. 
so early on, uh, what we like to do is look very specifically at a few things, and uh, those those things uh, are or include the dry bulb temperature, relative humidity, the wind, and the solar radiation. And by understanding these things, and not only how they how they work or operate in isolation, but more importantly how they operate um, together within a system, we can start to really kind of take advantage of this Southern California climate, and we can use uh, strategies developed uh, to allow us to use kind of the natural uh, the natural temperature swings, the natural humidity swings, and the breezes to make this a very comfortable place for people without having to use a lot of, uh, of HVAC. Okay. Okay, so kind of... Uh, Walking through this a bit, one thing that was uh, was important as we started to to analyze the site is understanding that uh, this particular location was really right on the boundary between two different climate zones. Um, and we'll kind of understand why this is important as we move through these slides. So we'll go to the next one. Uh, we can see that we're, we're right, uh, right on the edge of California Climate Zone 6 and California Climate Zone 8. Um, and so we're really getting a bit of the, uh, the 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 more Mediterranean climate that we see along the coast, along with some of the climate um, that's a bit different further inland. And we have to kind of take both of these things into account because uh, understanding these allows us to develop the, the right strategies to, to create kind of this open air environment that will be comfortable. Okay. So next slide. Um, this is just the Köppen-Geiger climate classification system. Um, it's uh, one of the uh, the primary ways to classify climates and just kind of understanding there you see um, the two different climate classifications and kind of how we straddle the, the boundary between the two. And then in the next slide, we're looking at some PRISM climate data. Um, these are 30-year normal patterns so that we can start to kind of understand the annual precipitation. Um, that's that's part of what we're studying along with, uh, with a lot of other climates. We, we look at uh, typical meteorological year, TMY3 files. Um, and what we started to do is actually uh, use some, some other services that project the climate into the future because we know that we live in a time of, of really rapid and remarkable climate change. Mm -hmm. And if we're designing based on what's happened over the past 30 years, we're really kind of starting out uh, behind. So we've started to project that climate data as well. Okay. Um, and then just a few uh, few images of uh, things that we're using. These are coming out of Ecotect. You know, it's a very readily available software, um, very powerful if you know what to what to use to uh, to generate the information and how to uh, how to understand the information that's coming out of it. So here we're looking at the uh, the dry bulb temperature um, through the year and through the day. Okay. And the next slide will help us understand a bit about the prevailing winds, and we're really interested in not only what direction they're coming from and what the magnitude of that wind is, but the content of, of the wind itself. And so what is the temperature? What is the humidity? And if we can understand these things, we can really start to synthesize a lot of these, uh, these different uh, climatic variables to help us with our strategies. Okay. Um, so psychrometric charts, and so uh, so most architecture students see these at some point in their in their education, uh, but essentially we're looking at temperature and humidity, and we're plotting all the points during the year and kind of understanding what uh, is the climate like in this zone relative to uh, what a what a person in North America might feel comfortable. So that kind of darker blue area, um, that indicates kind of the zone of human comfort, at least within the culture of, of where we live. And we can see that a lot of the points during the year are uh, at a lower temperature than what we're usually comfortable. So we kind of have to understand that we need to employ strategies that allow us to expand that range of human comfort, uh, both both directions. Um, so you can see here, um, thermal mass effect is, is something that we can use where we can uh, we can retain some heat and we can release it later in the night when we get a diurnal swing uh, so we can bring the temperature up and have it to be a, a little more stable. Okay. Uh, next slide. Um, it's just important here to show two of these because throughout this process of studying and analyzing the site, uh, we had to pull data from two different uh, airports. Uh, we needed to get one that was in both climate regions, and what we found was that data was um, similar, but there were enough differences that it made it very important for us to look at both sets of data and do some analytics between. Okay. Okay. And the next couple of slides uh, show how we start to look at the uh, LA Basin ecology and start to understand um, what are the natural features and the, the different variations in uh, local flora and fauna. Um, these things can often be overlooked when we're designing a project because uh, many times an architect has a tendency to jump straight into design without really understanding what's available. Um, if we go to the next slide, we can start to see 
where our project sits, uh, that little yellow indicator in the lower right, um, and then we can look at some of the different uh, environmental regions that are kind of around and surrounding LA, and we can understand that uh, there's the chaparral region that's uh, really quite, uh, quite intense in terms of the wildlife, uh, both with plants and animals. In, in the next slide, uh, something that we've started to do is we really try to take an inventory of, uh, of all the, uh, the native plant species. And what this allows us to do is kind of understand going in um, what would be appropriate to use here and how can we use this for things, uh, something other than just uh, thinking about it as a static landscape, but we can kind of take advantage of the evapotranspiration different plants and understand how if we can drag a breeze across a certain species that might help to cool the air or provide a different humidity level. Okay. So next slide, um, we establish a strategy and our strategy is really kind of uh, based within something called systems thinking. And uh, system thinking is really kind of understanding patterns or relationships between two things and how those could translate into behaviors. Um, and so when we um, employ a strategy based on systems thinking, uh, we build in what I call re relational redundancy. Um, so we have, we, we create a system that's not, uh, that's not going to fail if, if one particular uh, point of that system fails. We have something that's more ecological in design. And the next slide starts to show visually um, laying out um, how we work with the design team um, to understand the client's goals early on. So what we have here is kind of goals and strategies. And we had a, a goal of kind of managing or enhancing the microclimate here to, to have uh, human comfort and maintain kind of homeostasis where we didn't get any wild temperature and humidity fluctuations. And so what we've tried to do there is really kind of map these to these primary, secondary, tertiary, and even these micro strategies uh, within several different categories and kind of map how each of these things start to talk to each other. Okay. Uh, so understanding that, um, that kind of gives you a bit of the why. And so um, what we were challenged with now is essentially creating this, this large envelope uh, that does provide this open air environment. Um, and then figuring out how does, you know, how can we make it work? So here's a view kind of looking across uh, from some of the plaza area. So you see that uh, this roof or the skin um, really covers, you know, as, as we talked about more than just the stadium and it reaches out and creates these kind of outdoor rooms, uh, which are, which are really nice uh, to kind of blur the edge between inside and out. And so now the problem becomes uh, something that's a, that's a little more pragmatic. If we go to the next slide, uh, we're going to see um, what we're looking at is how do we design, develop, document, and fabricate a system comprised of over 75,000 uniquely sized and perforated panels. <laughs> so what we're right? doing here, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, super simple. Um, <laughs> What we're doing here is we're really trying to determine a way to allow us to create a perforation pattern um, that really starts to, uh, to give us the visual of, uh, of an image that we've applied over this entire roof project. And so we started with an image, and this was based on this, uh, this microscopic kind of abstraction of, of something that we found in nature that was uh, very important to the project. And we needed to find a way to, uh, to map that or to apply it uh, to this panelized system. And the panelized system was really a way to rationalize the, uh, the non-Euclidean geometry so that we could kind of wrap the entire project. So what we see here is a, is a, is a rendering of uh, some of the triangular panels. And um, we're going to kind of go into uh, to what we did to, to rationalize the systems. And maybe, uh, Heath, if I may sort of back up a second. So all the, uh, <clears throat> all the work you guys did to understand sort of the, the parameters of, of the site um, that we just talked through, um, give me a high-level overview of how is that sort of how does that reflected in this in this skin that you've created? Because you said from a programmatic standpoint, you know this uh, this big um, sort of roof uh, piece um, is designed to sort of kind of bring it all together, both the stadium and these other other parts. But how is the uh, the sustainable and the uh, the site characteristics reflected? I guess maybe in this piece. Mm -hmm. So with uh, with the roof enclosure itself, we have uh, we have a combination of this dual layer uh, permeable uh, metal skin system mm -hmm. uh, that allows breezes to come in underneath and also uh, filter through. Okay. And then 
the, the kind of localized area, if you recall back from the, one of the first images uh, over the stadium itself, we're using an ETFE skin system as the, as the roof. And uh, we're using that not only because it's, it's lightweight and it's transparent, so we get the feeling of kind of being outside, uh, but we can also kind of use these strategies in combination so that we can kind of tune uh, the ability to bring natural breezes and ventilation in from the side mm -hmm. and then take a little bit advantage of uh, allowing some of the heat uh, that we get in terms of solar heat gain uh, to come into the space uh, to collect in some of the concrete areas. Okay. And we can use that thermal mass effect that we talked about to start mm -hmm. to radiate that heat later in the evening mm -hmm. when it gets a little bit chilly. Okay. And so by a combination of being able to trap and retain some of this heat mm -hmm. and have the ability to vacate that, mm -hmm. uh, very specifically, we're starting the space to work well with its uh, with its environment. Okay, so for example, here, if you can see this this slide here, so this this little gap right here is sort of allowing breezes to sort of kind of flow through the hole uh, underneath the whole roof, and then maybe concrete areas down here, uh, as you say, they're holding the heat, and then later on, they're sort of um, uh, radiate them um, out. And, and then also you said you're using, if I followed you right, that this right here, this is ETF um, material, and so it's allowing you to get natural light in. Um, am I missing anything there? Is that is that a good understanding? That's that's pretty simply the yeah the way it works. We're okay. uh, we're using a combination of thermal mass of uh, natural ventilation. Okay. Um, and, and kind of making the two work together really well. Cool. And then uh, so this uh, this roof piece that we're seeing here. Um, is what we're going to kind of get into right now. So I'm noticing in this rendering, and you know, renderings change over time, so maybe it's not the case. But um, is you know, some some parts of this roof maybe they're solid, and some of them are are more what we're going to talk about, where where they have the perforation. Is that true, or is is this entire silver thing have that perforation going? So the uh, the entire silver area will uh, will actually have the perforation. Um, at least uh, that's the uh, that's the intent where we are now. Okay. Um, I think what we're seeing here is kind of a limitation of, of yeah. being able to render the perforation sure. with the uh, the mass beyond. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we're you know where we are and what we're seeing today. You know, really, it's it's kind of a snapshot of where we are, and we've yeah. looked at many different ways to solve this. So. Which is a good question. I mean, where are you guys in the in the whole uh, process of of making this building happen? Yeah, so um, so essentially where we are right now, we um, what you're seeing is kind of a, a snapshot in time in terms of, of one way to uh, to resolve this uh, uh, the skin, which is really probably the, the the most complicated part of the project itself. Um, we're in the process of challenging ourselves to think of uh, of other ways or methods that we could do that that uh, could achieve the the right results uh, and be able to meet our budgets um, and our time constraints mm -hmm. uh, and and still maintain you know what we what we set out to do in the beginning so okay are you guys under construction right now or, or not quite yet they're they are moving uh, moving dirt and have begun a lot of the uh, the initial phases for the over overall development there on site uh, so if you go out there today you can kind of see that underway okay. and uh, where we are with everything else is uh, really kind of uh, getting everything ready to go um, we're targeting a 2019 open date so okay. uh, as you can imagine it's, uh, it's getting really close. <laughs> sure. Okay. Cool. So let's hop back to uh, to the. Uh, are you, what are you guys calling this? Are you calling this a roof? Or are you calling this the skin? What are you calling it? Yeah, it's, uh, we, we've kind of called it the skin, um, okay. uh, just uh, just because it, it it does kind of shoulder around and and, and kind of do a couple of things. Uh, cool. So yeah. So the uh, so the roof problem here that we're looking at. Um, what, what we wanted to do is we wanted to, rather than design something and come back late in the process, you know, late in DD or even CDs and, and start to, uh, to work with, uh, with a fabricator at that point to, to kind of resolve all the challenges and to maintain uh, what our architects like to call design intent, we decided uh, it made, makes a lot more sense for the way we work to really kind of deliver that design intent uh, through an understanding of the fabrication process. And so we worked really early um, to start to understand uh, available materials, available processes, and uh, different equipment on the shop floor uh, so that we could really kind of build some intelligence into the system uh, based on what we were able to accomplish. And so okay. what we're seeing here with these perforation constraints um, this is this is kind of funny when you look at it, but essentially um, we're we're constrained more by uh, by time than anything else. Um, it was determined pretty early on that uh, you know we can go two routes when you're rationalizing a surface like this, and one of them is to create. Um, uh, 
a modular piece. And so we could say we're going to have one triangle, triangular element that will comprise this entire skin system. Uh, and that's certainly a way to do it. And um, quite, you know, quite honestly, in traditional kind of uh, construction methods, that made a lot of sense for many years. But now with uh, the ability for mass customization and with new fabrication techniques, uh, the way that we were going to, to cut the triangles and to punch the perforations, mm-hmm. um, really it, uh, it didn't save us a lot of time uh, to make them all the same size. And so what we're, what we're looking at here is, is how can we meet the time limitations. And so we determined that based on the available machinery and techniques that we had uh, and the open date not moving, we, we could use up to eight hole sizes to achieve this perforation pattern. And we needed to keep these perforations under 52 million. Um, <laughs> at that point, it was going to be really hard to, uh, to kind of meet our, our schedule. And then the, the material constraint, uh, you know, based on the, uh, the gauge of the material and the type of material we needed to maintain uh, greater than a half inch of spacing between the holes for the structural integrity. I like that. Uh, uh, only 52 million holes. <laughs> how is how is that magic number uh, come out? Is it you find out that it takes so much time to punch a hole and you have a certain time in your schedule or something? Exactly. You know, it's a, it's it's about as simple as that. Is you know, pulling out the calculator and uh, kind of kind of backing the uh, the hours in the in the years and, and yeah. understanding if we have X amount of seconds per hole, um, yeah. we can we can extrapolate that and understand how many we can punch. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Cool. Okay, so the the detail that we talked about. So these these perforations uh, that are creating this overall visual image and allowing for this uh, this kind of uh, permeable facade, uh, those are going to be punched. And so what we're looking at is kind of the detail of the coined die punch. Uh, so there will be various sizes, but they will be punched uh, at the same machine station where the uh, the triangle is actually cut around the perimeter. Okay. Um, panel constraints. Uh, so again, you know, where we are today, what we're looking at is we're keeping each triangular panel uh, less than four feet in width and with less than 10 degrees variation from equilateral. And we're trying to maintain kind of a, a consistent material grain with understanding that the, this particular aluminum and the finish uh, that, we're, that we're looking to use um, that's really kind of a, a visual constraint to make sure everything flows really nicely. And I will say here with the constraints, we've looked at upwards of six to seven foot panels and in, in other systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, this four foot width constraint is really kind of a product of working with uh, with Zaner, with the fabricator that was working with us as a you know design assist through the, the better part of this process and using their proprietary ZEPS system. And so those four-foot triangles uh, panels uh, work within that system. And so everything that you're seeing today is really kind of based on rationalizing to that four-foot width. Okay. So to, to start this out, here's, here's a place that you can start to, uh, to see, you know, a, a shot from above. And um, you see the ellipse on that, that left image. Um, that's really kind of the zone of the ETFE where you see these kind of cutouts. Um, so there where your cursor is. And then again, down lower. Um, the first thing we did is we needed to kind of set out our primary structural system. And so working with Walter P. Moore, um, we began by doing this uh, portion of it is kind of a radial system that you can see is following that ellipse. Uh, but then since this isn't really a, a, a symmetrical shape, um, that, uh, that radial primary structural grid system starts to kind of, kind of slowly fall and evolve into, uh, into different uh, configurations. Um, and so, we get our primary structural system set, and then the next step, we need to come in with some of the joist framing, kind of understand, okay, um, how does that work layered upon this primary structural system? And then the far right image you're seeing there is, is really more of the tertiary structural framing that's actually going to carry the panel and the panel loads themselves. And so, as you can imagine, if we're, if we're trying to juggle being efficient uh, with the tonnage of steel, uh, working with seismic considerations, uh, and think about our schedule and our cost, um, it's, it's kind of a juggling act between how many individual pieces that we have that we're erecting, the size of those pieces, the spans that we're using, and then just the fabrication time. So there's you know, kind of many balls in the air that, uh, that we're juggling between the structural team, uh, the fabricator, and the design team. Okay, and just to be clear, as you said, um, the structure that you're seeing here, this is the, the structure that's supporting the panel. So it's sort of the substructure that is then attached to the primary structure here over on the left. Is that right? Correct. Exactly. Cool. Okay. 
And so the interesting thing where you could see that, if you want to flip back really quickly to that uh, that panel structure um, that, that you were notating there. Um, this guy? Yeah. Yeah, there. Um, so so that's something that we have to think about because uh, even though this is a, a uh, at least as of now, there are two layers of this skin system, one on the exterior and one on the interior. Hmm. Uh, we know that that is going to telegraph through because of the uh, the perforation ratio that we have. And so since we have kind of this, uh, this visually permeable skin system, we have to kind of keep in mind that this structure is not something that's going to be hidden, you know, in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a closed plenum. And so uh, that's something that has to work very, uh, very well with you. Okay. So there's essentially a sandwich here and the top and, and bottom of the sandwich uh, are the aluminum panels. And you're just saying since they're perforated, you're going to be able to see everything in between because there's maybe not that much depth between them. Plus you'll have sunlight coming through them basically. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. So here was the image. All right, so the image, you know, so we, we touched briefly on the idea that uh, that there was this image that was driving this overall perforation pattern, so... Actually, Heath, you know what, if I can interrupt you, I'm sorry. I have a question here, which is probably a good time to ask it. Um, uh, folks are wondering what software uh, was used to create the overall design um, of, of the project. So was this a Revit project, is this a Rhino project, an ArchiCAD project? Mm -hmm. So we, we, we began the initial conceptual... Uh, massing and modeling uh, within Rhino and Grasshopper. And so we, we tried to set out from the very beginning a way that we could easily uh, share scripts, uh, Grasshopper scripts between the structural engineer and the design team. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, you know, we, we've kind of learned as we've done some of these NFL stadiums over the past few years that having a good computational strategy up front uh, could really help in, um, I think of efficiency not so much as like how f how quickly we're, we're arriving at a solution, but more about uh, how, how many different solutions can we explore and, and how well can we arrive at the right one. So, so we tried to set up a computational strategy that began with Rhino and Grasshopper. Um, very quickly that included uh, a lot of Python uh, uh, scripting along with the grasshopper mm -hmm. and at, at some point in the process it became very apparent that uh, just the bottleneck of the uh, the geometry because of the scope of this project you know these are things that, uh, that that we've all been doing for several years you know kind of managing this complex geometry but the, the sheer scope that we were looking at just the computation time um, to be able to, uh, to to compute these things and then to uh, to to kind of get that that data that information from one person to another mm -hmm. really required that uh, that after the grasshopper and rhino and the python we went into a c++ environment uh, with visual studio and started to uh, uh, to create a lot of these procedurals uh, within that environment that would allow us uh, to kind of keep the bottlenecks in check so that we could have this pipeline of geometry mm -hmm. um, that could be uh, delivered in different formats when you're talking uh I'm guessing maybe you're, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're primarily talking about this, this skin, um, I think. Um, I'm curious about the entire project, you know, the actual stadium part, sort of the guts of, of everything else. Is it sort of a hybrid uh, between, you know, uh, let's say Revit and, 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 and Rhino slash Grasshopper or... Uh, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's uh, that, that's kind of the way we approach these. Is that uh, Revit is, is it's a very powerful documentation tool, and you know, and and for certain things, it can be uh, you know, I think the right platform for some of the design consideration, and so. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the the bowl uh, design work that we're doing for the uh, the seating bowl um, that's kind of uh, within the, the the Revit platform, mm -hmm. and then Revit becomes kind of a, a container uh, mm -hmm. for all of the information, so that uh, uh, we can understand between different parts of this really really large team that includes uh, not only people at HKS but uh, other consultants as well. Mm -hmm. it, it becomes kind of a repository or container for the, uh, the the geometry at large for the different parts and pieces. So uh, what we might be working on. Uh, within Visual Studio or within uh, Rhino and Grasshopper uh, will at any given time be represented in some way within this Revit model that, uh, that kind of houses all of the info. Okay, cool. Um, so I just wanted to take a minute to sort of talk that through a little bit. Um, so, so back to the image. Yeah, so so going back to the image, so you know, early on the, the design team had this idea that this, uh, this, this microscopic image uh, uh, abstracted uh, really could create this uh, this this kind of beautiful visual of, of a perforation pattern over this this entire skin system and so as, as you can imagine um, 
fairly in conceptual design, um, it was it was relatively easy to kind of map this image, you know, at different scales and create renderings that uh, that could convey the idea, right? Um, what became uh, a little more challenging is that when we really you know, we, we had some uh, some agreement and alignment on the idea from the from the client and the project team, and then we needed to really start to study it. Um, this image was 15,000 by 15,000 pixels, uh, and even then it needed to be tiled across the surface. And so, what became the challenge was actually rendering this or visualizing it in a way uh, that we could see it uh, where our pixel dimension wasn't the size of five, six, seven uh, or more perforations. And so um, if we couldn't get the fidelity uh, with the visualization, we were really kind of cheating ourselves in terms of what we were actually going to see. And so the challenge then with the image was how can we, um, how can we process this image in a way uh, that allows us uh, to, to create the visual that we're looking at um, in a manner that's consistent with physics and the way light's actually working and not a rendering trick, right? So mm -hmm. what we started to look at was different uh, different dot densities um, as we're just manipulating the uh, the image itself here. And so uh, we're, we're kind of taking this image and we're looking at kind of different abstraction levels. And so obviously the more dot density we have, the closer to the original image it gets. And then the next study, as we move to the next page, we start to uh, to look at some halftone uh, procedures uh, to this image as we're processing it, and you can see kind of a, a zoomed in uh, on the the images above the three images, and then corresponding with each of those is kind of a, an overall you know kind of taking this overall starting image and seeing what happens when we're looking at that. So if we start to look at it with different halftone varieties and in grayscale, we can start to see not only what that does from like a an overall perspective from very far away, but uh, also as we begin to move closer or what kind of grain or detail is involved. Heath, what are, I don't understand what you mean here when you're talking about halftones and grayscales. What, what are you really doing to that image? So these are these are essentially you know if we if we were to open up Photoshop and then start mm -hmm. to uh, to use some of the filters and and uh, and start to manipulate that this is essentially what this is we're we're using Photoshop and um, mm -hmm. and using that to manipulate the image so that we can just see what different varieties of abstraction uh, we can we can achieve with it mm -hmm. and so you might imagine uh, you could take a picture of yourself uh, you know your face and you could put it in uh, by by doing enough of these kind of color dodging grayscales half tones and these different effects we could start to create something that uh, that might still be recognizable uh, as your face at some level but as you zoomed in or out it could start to become really abstract and more visually interesting mm -hmm. okay I got gotcha. you okay so uh, next slide here, we start to see, um, you know, moving beyond the, the halftone uh, procedures and processes, we're looking at some Gaussian blur and then looking at some of these overlays. And so this is uh, really just an example of how we're starting to, uh, to manipulate the, the image using different techniques within Photoshop. So we're trying to... Uh, to manipulate it enough that it becomes something unique, you know. So even though we're starting with something that would probably not be recognizable uh, from from most anyone that sees the image, had we left it the same, uh, it became a lot more artistic and 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 really started to read it better scale uh, when we did manipulate it and abstract it, you know, to different levels. Mm -hmm. Okay. So next slide. And so now here we start to get into uh, kind of back to the uh, to the, the 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 physical world again. So we we've just looked at the, the manipulations of the image itself. Uh, so next thing we needed to think about was how do we um, how do we visualize this image on these panels uh, by punching holes in the panels, knowing that we're going to have to work with uh, either an open uh, uh, you know a punch a hole or a field of just the material itself. And so. Um, juggling that against the criteria that we have for the uh, the triangles, um, we needed to determine what's the best procedure to lay out the perforations and, and how will those uh, how, how will those be aligned. So you can see we're kind of studying here from the left to right. We start with just kind of an orthogonal alignment, um, but what you see there is we get kind of this uh, this stepped edge. So these staggered edges uh, don't really align to the panel very well. Uh, in the middle, we use a diagonal grid that was kind of based off of one edge, and so uh, one edge becomes fairly clean, but the other still has the stair step effect. Um, 
in the end, or at least where we are now, what we went to is we kind of subdivided the grid. Uh, so we took that triangle and we, we used a series of subdivisions so that we could align the perforations to every edge. So we got a nice mm -hmm. clean edge and, and, a nice, uh, and a nice spacing between the perforation. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, that ultimately probably means that the uh, all the the hole sizes are maybe they're different, or the the spacing between them is is slightly different in order to make that all sort of shake out and line up on the sides. Exactly. What, what we're visualizing here, we're using a, a single um, perforation hole size, okay. uh, really to kind of understand what the largest hole we're using. Can we maintain that half inch spacing, and we can can we kind of see where our center points are going to be, so that we know as we manipulate that that uh, diameter of the hole size, they're still going to fall within this grid. Okay. Okay. And then moving ahead, um, we're looking at perforation density next. And so, um, as you can imagine, uh, t in order to, to show this image, we need to kind of fine tune the density of the perforations uh, with the image map itself uh, at the actual size that it's going to be. So that we, we know that on one hand, if we have uh, too much density, um, it's going to give us one look. Uh, if we take that to the extreme and we, we make this uh, uh, as few of perforations as possible, it may not give us enough uh, enough fidelity to work with in terms of, uh, of the image itself. So you're seeing here from left to right uh, just uh, an increase in density of these perforations laid out on the, uh, the subdivided grid. Okay. Uh, next, we we use the noise multiplier uh, procedural, and so this is uh, kind of the you know a noise algorithm like you might have in uh, in different uh, photo editing software that we just ran through our our uh, Visual Studio. Um, but what this is allowing us to do is uh, again to just look at different iterations of how we abstract uh, the image itself. And so what we're after here is we're trying to balance the amount of fall off or or the uh, the gradient that we see between the pure image and then applying this noise multiplier, we start to get a little more of the kind of the pixelated snowflake effect that you see on the uh, the upper right image. Mm -hmm. And this is important because it allows us to kind of balance uh, the, the solid and the void in a way that remains interesting at multiple scales. And so as you're flying over the stadium, you're going to read it at a, at a very far distance as you're driving up to it uh, versus when you're walking around in the plaza or you actually walk up into the stadium and reach out and kind of touch the surface. We want it to be visually interesting and engaging at, at each distance. Uh, and so down below. Heath, let me ask you actually, so uh, just to sort of zoom out to 10,000 feet again, what you guys are doing here is, is these studies here on, uh, on how to handle the edge, um, the density, and then also now about the noise um, multiplier, you're, you're applying or you're sort of driving these iterations and these studies, uh, not through Grasshopper necessarily, but you're, you're, you're running them through the, the software that you guys developed yourself. Is that right? That, that's, that's correct. And, and, and what that software is essentially doing is it's, it's allowing us to use other software, such as Photoshop, um, to apply these procedures. Uh, some of the procedures are applied with the, with the, you know, the kind of the custom, I don't know if we'd call it an application per se, because we haven't, uh, we haven't developed a UI that we would release this, but it's something that we can work with, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but this allows us to just handle knowing that for each of these that we're doing, um, we're going to need to do 75,000 of them. Mm -hmm. Kind of understanding how how can we apply this you know these this many iterations of uh, of procedures uh, to this image and then map it to this uh, to this triangle seventy five thousand times mm -hmm. uh, so that everything coordinates mm -hmm. and so that's really kind of the reasoning that we're using that custom application. Okay, because you had so many panels that you know you would have <laughs> you would have broken Grasshopper or you would have broken some some other tool um, in terms of trying to process it and do you know as many iterations on this as you wanted to. Right. Okay. Okay. And so moving through here, we're just going to kind of flip through these to kind of see the progression. But I just wanted to, to give you a sense of looking at the panel subdivisions. Um, we're, we're panel. We're subdividing each of these triangular panels, uh, but we're also looking at how we are uh, how we're tiling the overall image uh, by the same token. So across the upper image that you see there, we can see we start with the triangle and we start to subdivide that uh, to different degrees, and that allows us to really keep the uh, the perforation. Uh, 
patterning uh, aligned with the panel. And then we're looking at the, uh, the the vertex mapping where we're starting to kind of use that to kind of create some of the fall off uh, between our our solid and, and, and void. And then the lower left image is showing our overall image and, and how it's tiled. And so you can see here, this is a two by two. And if you look closely down the center line of that lower left image, you can see where it's mirrored. Mm -hmm. So that's taking that overall image and it's mirroring it for a, for a two by tile. So let me ask you, I don't know what you're, when you're over here, when you're talking about vertex mapping display uh, and recursive midpoint, what does that all mean? I don't know what that means. So, so essentially what we're doing there is we're kind of, when we divide the, the so the, the upper one with the panel subdivision that says the centroid mapping display. So mm -hmm. we're creating a centroid within each of those subdivisions. So mm -hmm. if we look at the 16 faces subdivisions, we have a centroid associated with each of those triangles. Mm -hmm. And down below where we're doing the vertex mapping display, uh, what we're doing is we're kind of, we're jumbling those, uh, those subdivisions that we see in the upper level. Mm -hmm. we're, we're kind of jumbling those and switching them around in a way that further abstracts that image. And so you could think about it as if you divided that, uh, that photograph of our face that we talked about earlier into mm -hmm. a 10 by 10 grid, mm -hmm. and you started to take one of those cells and, and switch it in place with another one mm -hmm. uh, to get a little bit of a jitter to mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we're doing with that, uh, with that vertex mapping. Okay, gotcha. Okay, and so as we flip through these, you can just start to see we go from a two by two to a four by four tiling, six by six, and we're just iterating, you know, kind of through through a lot of these. And, and really, the idea is is I, I call it I always kind of want to test the threshold of either side. You know, if we if we tile it one time versus you know twenty times, just to kind of see how far we can push it, and that essentially gives us our kind of uh, kind of crude solution space. And so we know that, uh, okay, we want to kind of focus on, on something, you know, that looks visually pleasing in this area, but kind of meets our criteria with everything. And so where we are right now, we're at a, uh, a four by four tiling, and that's taking this image and it's used four times across the entire surface that we're seeing. And to be specific, just so, just so I'm following, so here's a, just sort of an axon of the, the roof skin uh, element, right? And when you're saying eight by eight, you've taken your image, you've, you've, you've um, tiled it, uh, you know, so it's an eight by eight configuration, and then you've taken that and you essentially applied that over here onto your under the under the the skin. Is that right? Exactly. But what you're saying is you guys ultimately decided to go with this four by four. Is that right? That's where we are today. Yes. And so that four by four, uh, what that gives us is again, it's that read at the various uh, various distances. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what you'll see in some of the uh, some of the renderings uh, as we kind of flow through the next slides. Okay. Um, and so here, um, really, what we're what we're showing, it's just simply kind of looking at the the the, the pixels to the panel. And so we're seeing uh, the image tiling of a two by two on the left, three by three in the middle, and a four by four on the right. Uh, and these are just kind of looking at this. You see the overall image stretched across the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, you see the uh, the axon, and then above you see kind of a zoom in look. And so this goes all the way to an eight by eight tiling is what we're showing. Okay. Uh, so the next slide, you know, when we talked uh, earlier in the week, we know we talked about so uh, you know with this tiling, um, is it going to be visible on the skin, and if so, how much? And so I just wanted to show here, uh, so you can see this is just kind of a, a a rendering of a portion of this entire project that we kind of see this image going across. And if you flip to the next slide here, I've just kind of indicated that's where we're seeing one of those four tiling. That's that's one seam uh, between the image right there. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And so um, even though it's going to be tiled, um, there, there, there will still never be uh, an identical triangle uh, to another one because of, of, of the, the position, the, you know, the, the way they're the way they're rationalized across the surface and the way the perforation pattern um, is kind of floating irrespective of that uh, that overall uh, uh, structural diagrid. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, if you if you really know where to look, you could probably see the seam, but uh, but it's going to be hidden fairly well. So yeah, it is hidden really well. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, so we have a, a few minutes left, and I thought I would talk a bit about the process here. And so, you know, there's a question earlier about, you know, what kind of, uh, of applications we're using and the tools we're using. Um, to step back, you know, one level, maybe beyond that, thinking about the, the process that we're, you know, file to fabrication and kind of understanding what we're trying to achieve here is, is we want to work in a way that allows us to deliver uh, this project without, uh, potentially without having to, to do a bunch of drawings that, uh, that we're passing back and forth. And um, there's some, some specific reasons for that. Uh, uh, it, 
I think it helps us with the workflow. It can be a little more fluid. Um, we are, we're really leveraging um, the, the availability of the, the fabrication shop in this manner. Uh, but essentially what we're trying to do is, if we go to the next slide here, um, Everything that we've rationalized uh, with the geometry, um, we're extracting that panel data. So we talked about we started in Rhino and Grasshopper, and we've kind of rationalized the panels themselves uh, on the ZEPS system, uh, which is the Zaner uh, system, uh, and they had some help from Studio NYL to kind of lay the ZEPS system uh, within this overall uh, kind of structural grid. So we're extracting that panel data, and we're getting uh, essentially um, a text file that contains all the coordinates for these panels. That's right. So when you say you're extracting the panel data, you mean you're extracting the endpoints of each panel in 3D space, maybe plus the cent centroid of each panel, right? Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. So that we're we have we have the data that we can take uh, the that we've extracted that we, then we can feed into another application or even the same application later on and essentially uh, recreate the same scenario. Okay. So you're sending XYZ points for those you know those four XYZ points for each panel. Yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, so then the next thing we're doing is we're trying to generate the raster data. Um, and so that's what we explained earlier is taking this image um, that we've rasterized and applying that uh, to these panels that we've, that we've rationalized across the surface. And so you can see here that, uh, that upper left image, we're taking that JPEG, and, and that's where we bring that, uh, that extracted ge geometric data uh, in the text file. Uh, and we combine that with the image in uh, Visual Studio, and that's where we're kind of layering the two together at that point, so that we can we can map the physical uh, constraints of the panel uh, to the um, the perforation pattern that's going to locate the centroids of all of the their center points of all of the perforations. Okay. And then the next thing we need to do is we need to take that and we need to map that to a material. Um, and so, so this is essentially we're mapping that uh, that image uh, to the actual uh, panel itself. And so this allows us to, to visualize this in the way that we talked about uh, that will um, really uh, be uh, more true to the way we actually see something rather than just a representation. So. Um, here we're taking that uh, the, the information that we've uh, combined in Visual Studio, and we are taking that into 3D Studio Max. And so now we have each one of these triangles. Um, we have the information that we can rebuild those, uh, and we can map the perforation pattern to the individual triangles. So let me ask you, I mean, the reason you're mapping this to a material is just purely for visualization purposes and maybe for study, um, or is there something beyond that? So it's... It's 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 so it's both. It's first for the for the visualization study. It's it you know it's it's sure. going to be um, you know required to be able to do that and actually see that in the way mm -hmm. it works. But then the next thing is that uh, we we have to map the uh, the actual perforation information um, to the geometry also. Um, so so the the steps that we're using to get to the visualization process are very similar to the steps that we're using to create the information that we can actually build the panel with. Okay. And so that visualization that allows us to start to look at this from the from the different uh, different focal lengths here that we're looking at, so we can start to understand uh, with this aluminum skin, uh, with this particular finish and this particular um, pattern, uh, by the the perforations that we've located with the constraints involved, uh, we start to see something like this, and we can go through, and we did several iterations of that to kind of see all the different effects of, of uh, the different uh, the different tiling, the different uh, the different visual procedures that we did, and so from there. Um, what we set up this process to do was that we could easily start to generate our drawing files. And so as we talked about that information where we were mapping everything to be able to visualize it, we now have uh, the information layered so that uh, we have the, the triangle located and we have the information associated with those perforations. So the center point is there, but we also know what the diameter of that hole will be. And so at this point, we could uh, kind of automate uh, the generation of all the drawing files for each of these uh, 70,000 plus panels. 
which would be a big, a big, uh, you know, time saver. And there's there's been examples of that that have been done before. Um, you know, where where people are writing scripts to to generate a lot of the cut sheets and a lot of the uh, the details for some of the things like this, because in many jurisdictions you're required to have the paper drawings for permitting. However, uh, if we go to the next slide, um, the way that we in anticipate and we are intending to deliver this is instead of drawings, we are going to uh, generate text files instead uh, that will essentially probably be a CSV, a comma-separated value file containing all of the information for the panels and the perforations uh, and their location. Uh, and that could be delivered directly to Zaner uh, or a fabricator. Um, and they could use that uh, with very minimal processing uh, to take that into G-code to drive the machines to create these individual uh, triangles with the individual perforations uh, for that unique image that we saw. So, so let me stop you there. So that's obviously a pretty incredible thing that you guys are doing here. Um, and you certainly make it sound super easy. Um, I assume, though, that you, know, uh, you have your fabricator involved really early in the process. You've uh, worked out the details of, you know, what kind of information they needed, what kind of format, exactly what, what, what data you are going to send, what data you're not going to send. Can you talk through some of those decisions and, and the process you guys went through to make this pretty uh, incredible thing happen? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, key to this this process is that you know. With, with our studio working, you know, kind of embedded with the uh, the sports and entertainment uh, the design team, you know, from the very beginning of this project, and working really, really closely with the structural engineer, and having the benefit of of Zayner come on board, we were able to have early conversations uh, about not only what um, what material we might use, what's available, uh, including the finishing and the uh, the feasibility of sourcing the material of and so forth, but we could also understand the uh, the fabrication process uh, from Zayner's perspective uh, in terms of what they have on their shop floor, what they're able to achieve, and how they can, you know, for instance, there's different ways you can create a perforation. We could water jet cut it, we could laser cut it, we could we could punch it with a die. Uh, so there's all these considerations, and so. Um, we have the the good fortune of having some people on the team that that not only have the the computer programming skills necessary to create this and think this through, but uh, uh, people like James Wharton, who was working on this project, uh, he has a lot of uh, experience with uh, with robotic manufacturing. And so having people with the skills like this, um, of which we have a few on the team that have worked in the robotics lab at, uh, at their universities and, and done some, some work like this, we can have a, a much more beneficial conversation with the fabricator early on mm -hmm. uh, because we can speak the same language. And so we can start to understand, you know, um, these are people uh, that have had experience uh, with the code used in the uh, in the shop and what's what's running the machines on the shop floor. And so we can better understand how can we best give the, the most pertinent information with the least amount of, of kind of noise mm -hmm. uh, delivered to the fabricator for, for mm -hmm. a really easy process. So was it sort of, um, I mean, I would have guessed you guys had some early conversations um, the people on your team and the people on their team who knew how to kind of um, speak the same digital language, you know, sort of put their heads together. And then you guys, I'm guessing, maybe did some, inter uh, some iterations on that. You know, hey, let me send you some, some data. You guys tell us what you think. And then, you know, they come back and they say, well, you know, clean up your data this way. Uh, we need this. We don't need that. And there's sort of an iteration until you fine-tune, um, you know, what kind of information you're sending them. Is that right? Or was it somehow different? Yeah, no, it, it, it's right. It was actually um, not not even as com complex as that. You know, really, it's um, it's just a couple of conversations, and we send uh, you know a couple of uh, of packages of data and. Mm -hmm. um, Zayner actually did, you know, a, a few prototypes uh, using that information, kind of in this process that we've uh, described, and um, it's it's really fairly straightforward. If you if you can get the uh, uh, the assurance that the data you're sending is is clearly and correctly representing the the geometry that uh, that you intend uh, to design and build, mm -hmm. um, that's really the, the crux of the process. And let me ask you this: so this is getting in a little bit into the weeds, but still. It, 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 revolves around the question of how does someone at, a, at an architecture firm make something like this really happen at their firm. Um, so for example, Zayner, theoretically, you know, your client is going to be using Zayner's um, metal panel system. Um, so you know, obviously, in, in many cases, in, in many, many projects, 
you put out your, you know, your, your construction documents, you have a variety of bidders, and you, know, you sort of decide who's, who's the best, uh, who has the best price and who has the best quality and so forth. Um, but in this case, Zainer gets in early, early in this process. Um, how, do you, how do you sort of reconcile that um, with you know, the project goals um, and essentially sort of signing up uh, Zayner early in the process, or maybe maybe you haven't, maybe you didn't, maybe they were sort of an advisor in the beginning, and then it was still an, an open bid, and they happened to win the win the bid. How how, how did that work? So it's it's actually um, it's kind of a, a step before the the ladder that you described. So okay. so Zayner was engaged uh, by the client early on for the design assist, um, you know, under contract to go through this process, but there but there was no guarantee. Um, so, uh, so they're working and they're helping to develop this, um, which is, is beneficial because um, uh, even though they're not guaranteed the project and even though, you know, that the client is actively, you know, looking at, at alternatives, which is the reality of something like this because, uh, you know, we, we, we all want to get the best solution for the, for the best value, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a difficult thing, and that's a conversation we have a lot because there there is a, a lot of, uh, of of value that can that can add to the process when you can bring um, the uh, the intellectual capital of someone who does this at a very high level uh, to early on. Mm -hmm. um, however, from a client perspective, um, it's it's prudent to make sure that that you do this in a way that. Uh, that you can you can still have have options um, right. to make sure that you're you're getting the best value and that you don't lock yourself uh, into one solution too quickly. Mm -hmm. And so we've had to kind of balance that, understanding that uh, we've created a, a what we think is a very uh, a very good process, and it's something that uh, that that we've kind of solved working with the with the people that we're working with. Mm -hmm. um, however, we've we've had to to understand all along that that this process and the way we're working um, would need to be nimble enough. Uh, that we could adjust it uh, and um, and kind of uh, you know respond later on if we do need to make some changes. Okay, so just to say that back to you, so basically, you know, someone like Zaner is essentially hired and paid to do the design assist work, and then when it's bidding time to actually bid out the real project and the, the actual scope of work, um, then you know it's it's open to you know whatever bidders, um, and so Zaner would theoretically in this case be one of them among others. And, and then they have the, the opportunity to win the project or not win the project, that kind of thing. Right. Okay. Cool. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so yeah, we so you know thinking about generating these text files, and so you know we're we're, we're trying to to achieve this, and and what we're looking at doing is you know we're 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 going to build this stadium, and uh, we're going to deliver this skin system without any paper drawings. And so the, the other key component there uh, to allow this to happen um, beyond kind of uh, establishing the, the, the team mentality to set it up this way was we needed to, uh, to talk with the California Board of Architects and uh, establish a procedure that they were um, that they would approve to allow us uh, to actually submit for permitting uh, with uh, digital files uh, rather than drawings, and so that was something that we did kind of in parallel with this, mm -hmm. is that we uh, we created uh, a procedure um, and a, a prototype, uh, a very crude kind of uh, interface that would allow us to stamp and seal uh, anything from a, from a Rhino model to a CSV file uh, in a way that that could be delivered and uh, and verifiable uh, as the, the the document that the architect had stamped and sealed. So, uh, so we do have the provisions in place to allow us to submit for permitting uh, with no drawings. Huh. How did I mean? How did you uh, digitally stamp these these models? Uh, so essentially, what we what we did was we we kind of looked at what's been going on uh, online for you know for many years, and we're yep. using a. a, a a unique hash code okay. uh, that's associated with each of these files, um, and so that's something that uh, mm -hmm. uh, that you can use. You know, if you're going to download something and you want to verify that it's uh, you are, it's authentic, you can compare mm -hmm. that hash against what it should be, mm -hmm. and um, if it gives you the green light, uh, essentially what we've created will show the architect's stamp and seal. <laughs> and if that hash code uh, is not correct, meaning that it could be something as simple as someone opened the file and closed it again or moved a comma, um, it's going to give you the red light, and you won't see a stamp and seal so you know that you're dealing with a file that is either out of date or corrupted or the wrong file. So. Interesting. So sort of uh, implementing some of the, like, let's say, DocuSign kind of technology into your models, basically. Yeah, 
yeah, essentially just just finding a way to make that um, appropriate for for the architecture uh, mm -hmm. architecture profession, I guess. Okay, so you've taken taken the project to this level. Um, and many many aspects of it, as we just discussed, are really um, at the leading edge of what people are doing in our profession. Um, tell us a little bit more about sort of the next uh, things you guys are thinking about. Yeah, and this is uh, this is always something that's uh, that's fun to talk about. So, um, uh, you know, we mentioned we have uh, some people of some some varying backgrounds in the studio, and. Uh, James Wharton is a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering, and he has kind of brought to the team um, some peripheral studies into additive manufacturing. So if we go to the next slide here, you know, if you can recall, we've kind of talked about the, the perforations and the triangular panel aggregation, and we have these 70,000 unique panels. Um, well, at the, the, the vertices between six of each of these triangles, uh, if we go to the next page, we have what's called a, uh, a spanner. And this is something that would be similar to like a spider connection that you might see on uh, like a Pilkington planar system glass or something like that, right? So uh, it's kind of clamping um, the, the points of all these triangles together at a vertices. And so if we, if we choose a spanner that can kind of be uh, globally optimized, it's gonna be an off-the-shelf product product and it could work um, at the interface of these panels everywhere over the whole skin system. Uh, however, it won't work optimally at all solutions. It has to have enough variability and tolerance built in to accept the different angles that these are coming together at different places on that curving surface. Uh, so we could think about, you know, well, if we locally optimize the spanner, we could kind of design something that works specifically for one specific vertice. Um, however, as you can imagine, if we were going to try to manufacture those by traditional means, um, that there would be a lot of spanners that we would have to create. So if we go to the next slide, uh, we can kind of see what we're talking about here. So we're, we've indicated with the, uh, with the red dots, there would be a spanner in each of these locations. And so imagining if we could take advantage of additive manufacturing um, and look at some things like uh, 3D printing of metal alloys. Uh, the next slide will show uh, what's called uh, electron beam melting. And that's essentially uh, using a laser affixed uh, to the end of a robotic arm uh, to, uh, to melt uh, powdered alloy into place in three-dimensional space so that we can kind of build up layers and create a component uh, um, by an additive manufacturing process rather than kind of milling it out of a, of, a, of a block. And so, you know, what this would allow us to do is to create these custom pieces in a way that, uh, that not only would uh, be, be quicker than creating uh, the, the, the traditional process to put in place to, to cut them out of a die or to, to cast them or so forth, uh, but we can also use a lot less material to do so. And so the, the, the next image, a couple of images show just essentially some studies that uh, that James has been doing that we've used to kind of fuel this study into how can we start to optimize our structural components in a way that we can kind of trace load paths and kind of carve away all the unnecessary material so that we're really creating optimized structural pieces. And this is really something that uh, that we're pursuing and we, we're getting some prototypes of these uh, these optimized spanners printed here very soon uh, in the anticipation that the next NFL stadium we build might have some 3D printed metal structural components on it. Awesome and really incredible stuff. Um, is there anything else that you guys are doing over there? Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun stuff. I, I have the... Uh, the, the, the honor to work with some uh, some smart individuals and uh, we have some great clients on some some amazing projects that uh, that we that we can work on so awesome um, if I'm not mistaken I think you told me that um, everyone who part who listened in to this uh, they get free tickets to the opening opening day at Ram at the Ram Stadium isn't that right something like that I think if you told them that I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. <laughs> there you go. Good. all right guys we'll take some questions here uh, uh, let's see I think um, the question I have here uh, from Dan Anthony is probably a good one here um, that uh, many architects are probably thinking. And it's, it's more of an artistic sort of question, uh, but I'll ask it anyways. Um, he's, he's curious about how you might better, uh, you know, us as architects be better about image mapping to actually meet performance characteristics um, and tuning an image to give a better shade, for example, at different times of the day, maybe versus, you know, um, you know, the, considering the images, you know, uh, 
or the perforations from primarily an aesthetic perspective. Again, that's kind of a value thing, so um, I guess you could kind of, you know, maybe you value it one way or the other, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about how you guys might consider doing something like that where you can tune the perforations to something other than just aesthetics. Yeah, yeah, we do, and that's you know that's something that I, I value personally uh, uh, very much. And so mm -hmm. we we have um, we've, we've actually done a lot of investigation and study into this, um, and um, we we're, we're doing work on other projects, not this one in, uh, specifically, but we're we're doing you know exactly that. We're kind of taking uh, kind of taking this artistic brushstroke or this you know this water droplet that's this idea, and that image you know can then be um, processed, and we're using um, you know things like Galapagos for uh, for evolutionary solving. You know within within the grasshopper environment, and then even taking that further to use oct octopus, uh, which allows us to do um, evolutionary multi-criteria optimization. So we can start to we can start to kind of take sometimes these diametrically opposed criteria uh, and and solve uh, for for multiple criteria at once. And so uh, by using an evolutionary solver, you know we can kind of tune into the specific location and and start to study things like daylight and heat gain, and we can manipulate these images or even create new images that, uh, that really respond kind of sympathetically with the, with the environment. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, well, good question, Dan. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking that. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and close it up there. So thank you, Heath, for sharing your amazing project with us. Um, and thanks to all of you who've tuned in and who submitted their questions today. Um, if you'd like to attend our next Super Simple broadcast on December 7th, where we'll feature Mark Fournier from The Very Many, um, he's going to talk about two similarly incredible projects. You can register for that episode at blackspectacles.com slash podcast. Uh, to learn more about our software tutorial curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out some of the free course videos. And for those of you who are ready to start learning some new design tools right now, you can use the coupon code 102616SSPC15 to get a 15% discount uh, for the entire duration of your Black Spectacles software tutorial membership. And finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, everyone.